And so I didn't have any contacts in the writing world. And so I emailed her and said, hey, I wrote this piece that is kind of about my racial identity. I'm biracial, my father's black, my mother's white. I've kind of not had that hard of a time in life and I wanna publish this, would you look at it? <laughs> and she said, yes, I'd love to see it. And I sent it and she said, great, we'll run it Saturday. And that's by far the most scared I've ever been, way more scared than I've ever been with anything since then. So they ran it and, uh, and it got really, really brutal comments. It's a site that allows comments. And there's wow. like, I don't know, 20 or 30 comments that were mostly, you know, screw you, your life's been so easy. Let me tell you about my life, lots of stuff like that. And it was hard to read those things, but in the end, it really, it worked. And it made me think, oh, wow, well, that, that's fine. Those people, they're not right or wrong and I'm not right or wrong. I just wrote what I think and they don't like it, but that's, I don't care. It felt really good to affect people. There were some positive comments too. And it felt good to get through that kind of bashing and feel like, great, okay, well now I know I can talk about that, it's fine. Welcome to Why Not Both, the podcast all about how our multiple passions shape our identity and our lives. I'm your host, Pam Schaefer, and our producer is Laura Studeris. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar Magazine. If you like what you hear, you can head over to our Patreon to support us directly and get transcripts of all of our episodes, or you can come hang out with us on your favorite social media platforms, where we can be found under WNB the podcast. For this week's episode, we got to spend time with Nabil Ayers. I hope that you enjoy our chat. Well, welcome to Why Not Both. Thank you so much for making the time to hang out with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if your publicist shared the conceit of the podcast, but it's essentially like we love to talk to people who do a whole bunch of stuff and like- All right. You do a whole bunch of stuff. It's true. And not only did they share, but I listened. I listened to the Angemily episode today. Which was great. Yeah. That makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, um, I guess like what impression did you get about hearing them speak on the pod? Like, I mean, it's, it's funny because we, well, the whole story is that I worked at 4AD for 13 years and just a few weeks ago, I moved into the beggars group. So it's a totally different job, but it's in the same building with the same people. So when I say we now, it feels strange to me, but it's still we, um, but uh, 4AD started working with Aunt Jimily. And so we've never met in person. We've been on a couple Zooms. So in a way, it felt like an extension of my limited conversations, which was really cool. It felt like, oh, wow, I get to really learn more and, and hang out and spend some more time. It felt sort of personal in a weird way. I think that's why I chose to listen to that one. Oh, that's really lovely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was cool. And that's so interesting moving from like one group to the other. Like what was your role in 4AD and what's like your new role with uh, Beggars Group? So I was the U.S. general manager of 4AD. So I work specifically for the one label, whereas the beggars group is made up of five separate labels, Matador, Rough Trade, XL, Young, and 4AD. So I only worked on 4AD stuff and worked very closely with those artists and their teams. Um, and now I'm the president of the beggars group in America. So oh. I oversee a lot more people. There are a lot of people who work for the group rather than the labels. And it's, it becomes hard to explain, but really 
the group sort of services the label. So all the A&R, all the signing of the bands and making the records and all that stuff happens at the label level. I think a lot of people think, will say like, oh, wow, Beggars is going to sign this band. What label are they going to be on? But that never happens. Individual labels sign bands. And when it gets to the point where the record is getting ready to come out or the single or whatever it is, that's when the group staff who do things like radio and marketing and advertising and all the backroom accounting and production, all that stuff, those are all group people. So I oversee the group. So in a way, I'm a big step removed from from artists and A&R and all that and work more with all the people who work on all the records. Wow. How does one oversee all of that? And did you start off doing kind of more of the granular things that you're describing or like, yeah, I was like, tell me more. Right. <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I, 4AD, my role there was pretty overseeing, whereas to, to say I was never doing anything specific like that, I wasn't doing press or radio. Um, I think weirdly what's helped me with all that is doing my own small label. I started a label called The Control Group in 2002, right? Because it's 20 this year, which is crazy. Um, and that just remains a relatively small passion project. I put out albums I like by people I like, and it's fun. And some do well and some don't. And hopefully it balances out. It's always been just me. Occasionally, I'll hire a publicist or hire someone to help with a project. But it's really just me. And so... And I did that before I started working at 4AD. So I think I already knew a lot about not only all those departments, but even the more mundane, how to get UPC codes and ISRC codes and all, you know, how to literally do everything. Because if you can't afford to hire people, you figure out how to do it. So, so I kind of came to it from that. So at least I have an understanding of what everybody does, even though I'm not doing everything. Yes. And that... I'm so glad you said that. That's why I was so curious about it is that oftentimes I'll run into people who will uh, not have had that experience. And so then when they're delegating or trying to organize things, if you don't understand the tasks necessarily that you are delegating, things can uh, go awry is how I nicely put it. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> they can, yeah. That's, wow. Gosh, and that's so sweet that you got to actually talk to Anjali. I mean, like how much interaction do you find that then you end up having with the artists that you end up, that's that's interesting to think of like the pipeline of how they move through that. I was like, how much interaction do you have with the artist? Right. It really depends project to project. So, you know, a New York based artist, we're in New York, we might see them all the time and go to every show and hang out and go to other shows and go when they play on Fallon, you know, all the things that all that stuff, whereas say a London based artist might do the same thing with the team over there. And we might only see them when they come over once or twice a year to play a show or something. But it really, there's no set rule or pattern. It just kind of depends on it's case by case, which is fun. And some things can get super deep in and other things not. And it's okay. Yeah. What yeah. I guess like what inspired you to start doing that work? A lot of people I find aren't necessarily drawn to the business of music, but the people right. are are like, it's almost like people who like, I, I personally like synthesizers. It's like, if you're into- As do like, I. Yes, yes. I was just like, I know my my camera is angled right now. Like there's the piano behind me, but I'm like low key. I'm just like, so the synths are over there. I've got a little OP1 <laughs> sitting right here in front of me. It's so fun. OP1. Yeah. Oh, it's like, um, I find the people who like the technical stuff, like really like the technical stuff. Right, right. But I mean- I think about this a lot because I guess people have asked me that a lot. I started out as a, literally as a baby, just super into music, surrounded by music, musical family, music always on in my house, like really literally completely surrounded by music and, and loved it. 
um, always. And I think the first record I bought, I'm a child of the 70s, so it was Destroyer by Kiss, which is, you know, still a great record to me. Um, that's the first record I remember going to the store and buying with my own air quotes money when I was five years old. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and we had a lot of records at home. I grew up with my mother and she super into music and she was a dancer. Um, and so I started to notice that there were record labels on the backs of these records, neither, you know, different logos and things on the centers. And I didn't know, I definitely didn't understand what they were, but I remember thinking, oh, interesting. This Kiss record has that same Casablanca logo that that Village People record has, because I like them too, because I was a child in the 70s. Um, and so that's the earliest memory I have of some realization that there is some business connected to it. Even though it didn't really tell me anything, it did tell me something. Mm -hmm. And then I just started to, it came kind of naturally. I play, you know, I was always trying to start bands. I played drums and had terrible bands in grade school where I just got two friends, you know, maybe one of them was learning to play guitar and the other one claimed to be able to sing and we would put on a concert. But when we did that, we would try to charge everyone a dollar at the door and we did and 10 people came and then we had $10 and then we split it. And that's, that is the music business. That is the most yeah. basic, or that is every business too. But but that was, I didn't know it at the time, but I think really from my earliest interest in music, there was always a business part connected to it. And I, I loved that part of it too. And in high school and especially in college, um, same thing. I would play in bands, we would record demos and then we would go to Kinko's and you know make yes. co covers for the cassettes that we burned at home and sell those the next day at school. So it was really just these very incremental small steps doing the same thing I do now, just on a much smaller, more remedial scale, I think. Well, and thinking about that in terms of like identity formation, it sounds like from a very early age, you kind of knew like, okay, I want to be in this lane. <laughs> like, Definitely. Yeah. Like, and you've been driving <laughs> in that lane since. <laughs> right. And kind of, I'm kind of straddling both, both the, from the creative side and the, it's interesting because people always say, I want to take that back. People always say there's the creative side and there's the business side, but the business side can be extremely creative. And there are oh, so yeah. many people who don't play music, but who bring really incredible ideas to the campaigns we work on. And whether that's whatever, making videos. I mean, there's so many things you can do that are creative, even if you're not playing music. But um, but I was always, always into playing drums and always wanted to be on the music side, but also always into the business end of it. And I do wonder sometimes if kind of being too interested in both kept me from really being great at one. Mm. I'm focusing all my energy in one place. If I, And more, I mean, I've done... I'm the president of a record company now. It's great. I'm thrilled. So I guess really it makes me wonder if I should have worked more at playing music and if, ah. but I, I don't necessarily think it would have made me happier, even if I had sort of an equal level of success, whatever, if I were in, you know, some huge band, right. I would have liked that, but I think, I think I did the right thing, but I do think along the way, there definitely had to have been a decision to go in the direction I'm going in. It was probably in my 30s when I didn't want to tour anymore, which is when a lot of people <laughs> have that <laughs> realization. Well, and it's interesting the way that like, even you just frame success. I talked to a lot of people about this, about like, how do we define what success is? And is it like, you know, obviously success does have an external factor in it, but some of it is also internal. Like, do you feel like you've worked on your music skills in a way that resonates with you? Like, do you feel good about the music that you're playing? Cause like in my mind, at least like that is success. It's like, if I'm making something that I feel matches like what's inside, I'm like, oh, that was successful. Like I managed to bring the thing that was in here out to here. Absolutely. Like, 
Yeah. And I think even at the big label I work for and on my own small label, I've had so many conversations over the years where people want advice about their music they're making. And Mm -hmm. if it's a friend or, you know, friend of a friend or whatever, my response is usually, I'm happy to listen, but I can't really give you advice. Do you like what you're doing? And the answer is usually yes. And then the advice is great. Keep doing it. It's like, cool. Like, what do you want me to tell you to make the guitars louder? This isn't, this is you. I could tell you what I like, but that doesn't mean it's going to work any better. It might work worse if I tell you to do something. There's no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You should just do what you want to do. Hopefully get better at it, put it in front of people and hope that you get lucky. I mean, that's both happily and sadly what kind of creative enterprise is in a lot of ways. Yes. I think that people are always searching for like kind of the, the magic formula. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like a lot of chaos, like music is not a linear thing, right? Like most fields you're like, I do a B and C and then I get to step D Mm -hmm. music. You're like, I did a B and C and music is like, cool. Right. Here's pie. Right. I did just what this (laughs) band did and we got the same reviews and did the same tour or whatever. Whereas, you know, whereas in the Olympics, if you're, if you are the fastest runner, you will win. That's it. Yeah. There's, it's not, there's no, no one gets to decide if they like you or not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I love what you said about like that you could give advice, but it would be subjective advice because like, I don't know, has anybody given you advice from outside your music that like then changed the way you saw your music and enhanced the way that you made music? It's, it's hard. Cause the way for me as a drummer, I mean, I I play, I always joke that I play couch guitar. Um, I've never really played guitar. I play guitar for fun, but in the bands I was in, I was always the drummer. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was never writing music. I was always in the band. I always, I think almost always of the, of the real air quote bands I was in, all of them already existed and I replaced another drummer. So not only was I kind of playing a bunch of existing music that already had parts, so I didn't even write those parts. And then kind of probably played like the last drummer a bit on the new stuff that I was involved in because that's what the band sounded like and that's what I was trained to do so it was a a unique thing in that not writing lyrics not writing music almost kind of a utility person which I think I liked and was good at and and the weird analogy that I keep bringing up is that I've written a book and I'm 50 years into my life and this book is about to come out and for the first time I feel like the singer in a band and I feel like I'm really like oh that must be because people would always, you know, you're in a band, oh, that must be hard to get up there in front of those people and do all those things. And it was never hard for me. It was fun and easy. I mean, of course, sometimes it was hard too. There are hard parts, but not not that kind of emotional difficulty that I think people who write and really deliver music experience. But now I get it finally for the first time. It's like, wow. And there's no, I can't even look back and see the drummer or the bass player or somebody else. It's just right. me. <laughs> That's a, what did, someone said to me, they're like, can I, Singers always are like, can I get a little more me in the month? <laughs> <Like, laughs> um, and I'm just like, so they're not wrong. Um, but it's like right. a certain level of vulnerability, though, when mm-hmm. you're putting something out, either like as the front person of a band or as a solo artist or things like that, that when I resonated with what you said, like I've played um, one of my friend's bands, all I had to do was play the glockenspiel. <laughs> It was. That sounds so fun. (laughs) It was great. Like, and so it's like that kind of like band gig where you're just like, oh, this is wonderful. Like I am getting all the accolades um, and you're really putting in the hard work. Right. 
Um, but it's so different when you put out your own voice and it's mm-hmm. like, you are making yourself vulnerable. And I guess like, how does it feel now? Like looking back and being like, wow, this is the first time I'm doing this. I guess like, what are you looking forward to now that you are sharing this? Yeah, I, it's not really out in the world yet. So it's still hard to say, but I, I, but I did take some sort of, I got my feet wet, so to speak. I mean, I, the whole writing thing came very late to me. I mean, five or six years ago, I just for some reason started writing and I really don't have a good reason. And I mean, what actually happened was that I played in a band in the nineties where we got caught in the desert with a bunch of pot and went to jail. And it was a crazy story with handcuffs and felony charges and all this stuff. And it was a really long, wild story with tons of ins and outs. And we got off, we didn't go to jail. Um, And I've told the story so many times. And so it's still, it remains really, really fresh in my memory. I can remember what things smelled Mm -hmm. like and what the handcuffs felt like and all these things. And so I was on a flight to London kind of bored and just decided to write it, not not to try to publish it, not even for anyone to see it. I just, for some reason thought it would be fun to document this and I have seven hours and I'm just gonna start typing on my laptop and did it. I mean, I'd taken some writing classes in college and I remembered the, the advice to, with something like that, just write as if you're telling the story. Don't think about that anyone might ever see this. Don't, you know, you, right. you have the power to decide if anyone ever sees it. So just write as if no one's ever gonna see it. You're just doing this for yourself. Right. And I really just flew through this on this flight. And then once I got to London, was able to start looking things up online that didn't really exist online then. So I was finding dates and places and tour dates and all these things connected to the story. And at the end of the trip, I'd written like 80 or 90 pages. It was really crazy. Oh my God. And it wasn't, it wasn't good or, I mean, (laughs) a lot of it was just like, talk about this, you know, some of it was really scattered and crazy, but, but whatever it was convinced me that I had a new interest was really what it did. So I took a memoir writing class and started thinking about more things and and wrote some short fun things about I used to own a record store in Seattle and the first thing I published was uh, we sold the store to a customer and it was really great vibes and so I wrote this kind of story about the early years of the store and published it in The Stranger in Seattle and it was it was great and that was really fun Um, and a couple more things and then my my girlfriend at the time now my wife um, she's the one who really kind of challenged me and she said look you need to like this is great this is really fun you can write about your bands and your record store but what you need to write about is your father and your race because that's what interests you and that's what's going to interest other people and that that scared the shit out of me because that yes. was like <laughs> I know you're right and that's a scary thought those are that's vulnerable what's you know it's more vulnerable than I got handcuffed in the desert and I owned a record store you know which which was fun and great but um, so what I did is I wrote this piece for The Root, which is um, this Black culture website in New York, this great site. And well, actually, I just wrote it and I pitched it to them only because it was so easy to pitch because the editor's email address was sitting on the masthead. And so I didn't have any contacts in the writing world. And so I emailed her and said, hey, I wrote this piece that is kind of about my racial identity. I'm biracial. My father's black. My mother's white. I've kind of not had that hard of a time in life. And I want to publish this. Would you look at it? <laughs> and she said, yes, I'd love to see it. And I sent it. And she said, great, we'll run it Saturday. And that's by far the most scared I've ever been. Way more scared than I've ever been with anything since then. So they ran it. And uh, and it got really, really brutal comments. It's a site that allows comments. And there's wow. like, I don't know, 20 or 30 comments that were mostly, you know, screw you, your life's been so easy. Let me tell you about my life. Lots of stuff like that. And it was hard to read those things, but in the end, it really, it worked and it made me think, oh, wow. Well, that 
that's fine. Those people, they're not right or wrong and I'm not right or wrong. I just wrote what I think and they don't like it, but that's, I don't care. It felt really good to affect people. There were some positive comments too. And it felt good to get through that kind of bashing and feel like, great, okay, well now I know I can talk about that. It's fine. And so that was the weird, yeah. That's almost like the worst thing that could happen technically is like, if someone's like, I don't like what you did and someone didn't like what you did. And you're like, oh, I live to tell the tale. Right. It's it's also just kind of like the, whatever, my guitar should have been louder analogy. Like it's just, it's all opinion. Yeah. (laughs) It's all subjective. And you put out something vulnerable and one, I want to commend your now wife. Like what a good partner to point out, like, Hey, this is the thing that actually people will probably react to and Mm -hmm. communicate with you about, because this is something that people care about. Like that's the kind of outside perspective thing, but also that can only come from someone who genuinely knows you well. Right. Right. Of course. Like the gem within you that people are going to respond. Um, And that's fascinating also that it opened up a conversation, both positive and negative. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know about you, but if I make something, it's not that I want people to dislike it, but for me, the worst reaction is honestly, oh, cool. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> this is something, this is something at, at 4AD we, we have talked a lot about over the years when, when we, not when we release an album, but when we sort of start to get it out to people or to friends or the press or whoever, and start thinking about people's responses, if it's really good and really bad, it's, that's great. And when it's like, yeah, yeah, I listened to it. It's like, oh no, we got, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Like you have to have people that hate it or that, that that feel not hate it, but you know, yeah. Sometimes even don't understand it. And that can be, that can come across as negative. Yeah. Like it has to like stir something up essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Like that to me is at least like when I know that I've done, I've done, (laughs) I've done something juicy. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I guess like once you started talking about your own identity, was that a topic that had come up a lot? Like say with your now wife, like how did she know that that was something to bring up? Particularly like family history is something that is very vulnerable too. That's a good question. I mean, we'd probably only been together for a year or two at the time. So she wouldn't have known a ton. It's not something I feel like I talked about that often, but, but I think a lot of it relates to my father, who's a fairly well-known jazz musician, Roy Ayers, who I didn't grow up with, have never really known. Um, my mother asked him to have me, basically. She said, I want to get pregnant. I want you to be the father. We're not really dating and you don't have to be around. Wow. And he agreed and here I am. And I've always known this. And so, I mean, of course there are issues, but it's not divorce. It's not, he left us. There was this very unique agreement that existed. Um, And so I think it's the fact that especially in the last several years, and since we started dating, he's really been around Mm -hmm. playing shows. I hear the music everywhere. People ask me about him all the time because we look alike and we have the same last name. So it's, I would guess it probably came up in conversation a lot with my wife or girlfriend then simply because it was around in my life yeah and that's that was the good time to start writing about it because it was really kind of he was having this resurgence at least for me that's really interesting too because I have heard of other people having this kind of like almost like arrangements for I don't know what to call it other than like arrangements for fertility where it's like they're just like no I want that from you but I don't need the afters from you right Um, and like then hearing from 
the child born of that because that's a decision that like two adults can make that makes total sense but then Mm -hmm. it's are creating a new person who's then going to have their own experience of that right absolutely um wow that actually is really (laughs) fascinating no wonder she said that i was just like no that's (laughs) interesting And that's because, yeah, like we have so many narratives around like what family is supposed to be and why. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that out. I mean, so much of the writing process, it, what was really interesting was that, I mean, so what I did from that point is I, I was like, that's, you're right. And that's going to be really hard. And I also don't, it's going to be hard emotionally, but I also just actually don't know how to do it. I don't, the other things I've written have just kind of come to me and I've been, pretty good about just the record store stuff was easy it was fun those are stories the band story I'd told a million times like those things are relatively easy to write because I have them yeah and the father stuff was almost the opposite it was like well I have so little to tell how do you write about when I've been writing about all these things that I do have I have to almost write about something I don't have and so what I did is I just thought about when I've met him a handful of times in my life um most recently in my 30s, we actually connected as adults and had lunch in Seattle when I lived there and he was there. And I took lots of notes. I remember that really, really well. And then, but before that, I just met him four or five times as a kid yeah. and, you know, really quick time, whether he was playing a concert or he, my uncle took me to visit him at a recording studio with really brief interactions. But I remember those, I remember some of those. So I just wrote about each of those. And I wasn't trying to write a book when I was doing this. I was just had this crazy writing bug and my wife said you should write about this and I just like went with that so uh so I tried to write each of these sort of little instances but it was it was very visual for me and what it turned into I think I I exhausted those and then it became like oh there's that time I was in that bar in Austin and his song was playing and I showed someone my ID and they said any relation like the weird stuff like that 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 happens a lot so I kind of filled in the gaps with some of those and suddenly I had 10 or 15 stories over 40 something years. Yeah. And I think that's when I'm doing this with my hands because to me, it was really visual. There are these actual stacks of paper. There weren't in real life, but in my right. head, there is, there, this is all yeah. just on a hard drive, but in my head, there were stacks of paper that represented each of these little stories. Wow. And in my head, the exercise was obviously, oh, well, I just have to fill in this huge thing. And then it's wow. the whole story and it's a book. And that's what ended up happening. I mean, it took a long time, but how did it in kind of like that excavation process did you find that you ended up I guess I'm curious about like what did you learn about yourself in excavating like these moments with your biological father yeah I mean that is a great question I think I learned well two things I think and this is based on such limited knowledge but I think we're very similar in some ways and we're very opposite in some ways and some of the ways that were similar I would like to change and some of the ways that are opposite I would like to change (laughs) (sighs) which is probably everyone's relationship with every parent ever right but it's fun to realize it about somebody that I've never really spent any time with and to think like wow interesting all those things that all my friends say about their fathers exist with me with this person I've met five times yeah yeah oh my god that's fascinating. Yeah. Cause we think about like, um, I was just talking with one of my friends about kind of like ancestral lineage and like how we have, what's the word for it? It's, it's like epigenetic memory. Oh, I don't know. What's There's that? Like, 
there's a name for essentially how we carry memories through genetic lineage without sharing it like verbally, but we carry oh, wow. generational mm-hmm. things to each other. And like people then see this when they've been separated physically from someone who they're related to, right? They were like raised in a different household, like things like that. Mm-hmm. But then they find these like weird commonalities that you're just like, wait a second, is that like just a we're all human beings thing? Or like, oh, right. we actually have that in common thing, mm-hmm. even though we weren't around each other. Right. I mean, yeah. the, the craziest thing is, is this is this is common. This is something you hear all the time. But when we finally sat down to have lunch in Seattle and we were across from each other, just the mannerisms and the laugh and certain things. It was just mind blowing to to watch this. <laughs> it's like, this is crazy. This is really like looking into a mirror. I had no idea that it would be like this. It was wow. very crazy. Wow. And I guess what what did the rest of your family think while you were working on this? Like, did did they share any thoughts with you about like- Oh yeah. <laughs> my mother shared lots of thoughts. I'm, re- I'm really close with my mother. She lives- up the street in Brooklyn. I'll see her this weekend. That's great. Um, And and we grew up together, really just me and her. So we're super close. Mm -hmm. And she was involved, not involved, but I mean, really in the know this whole time. And so, so, I mean, I saw a protective side of her, like I'd never seen right when I started to, I think at the first time, I mean, basically I was in my mid thirties and he would come to Seattle and perform once every year or two, it seemed like. And I just never thought of it. I always knew I owned a record store. I was in music. I would see his name and I would think, oh, that's cool. Whatever. And for some reason, one year, I thought, I feel like and it's probably because he was getting older and I was getting older and I didn't know medical history. There are a lot of actual practical reasons too. And so I just thought maybe it's time to try to get a hold of him. I wonder if I can do that. And uh, and so I asked my mother and not only did she say she didn't know how, but I mean, really like, are you sure you want to do that? Why would, you know, like really not. And I, I could tell it wasn't that she was worried what I would find out. She was just so afraid that I was going to get hurt. Aww. And that that it wasn't going to work out somehow, or that he would be that I would get a hold of him, and he would agree to meet me, but then wouldn't show up. I mean, all these really specific scenarios that I would imagine had happened to her with him yep. popped into her head. <laughs> That's yeah. what I was thinking. Of. And, and so that was just a whole new thing that I, a whole side of her I'd just never seen. Wow. Um, but she was very supportive the whole time, and it was good (laughs) that's fascinating because also then you get to learn about like when you brought up the racial identity thing especially being biracial it's like that would be almost like in my mind it was almost like finding a missing puzzle piece where it's like yeah because obviously there's your self-perception but like you can't control how others perceive you Mm -hmm. and like several of my friends I've talked to who are biracial talk about how especially if they're raised in like a household with like primarily one race of people or the other, mm-hmm. like you take on obviously the traits of that, but then people perceive you differently. Right. And right. So, so I'm a, yeah, I have a white mother and my first record was a kiss record. So yes. my dad might be black. But... Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although this is what I do talk about this in the book, but there definitely was something about kiss. I mean, we listened to tons of Stevie Wonder and Roberta Flack and so many black artists when I was a kid as well. But, uh, but there was something about kiss that was interesting to me in part I knew they were white but I liked that you couldn't tell what they looked like and they kind of could have been anyone even though I I I knew what the deal was but there was something it was the idea that I could I could put on a kiss outfit and I could be in kiss I couldn't be in the Beatles I couldn't be Stevie Wonder but I could be kiss if I did what they did and I really identified with that weirdly 
I like how I'm like, you could also be in Guar. No one would know. <laughs> right. Any costume <laughs> band, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah just like... <laughs> fascinating though because there are artists that like transform their identity like over time like I was thinking of Bowie but like Bowie's always Bowie which is Bowie in different you know Bowie iterations Mm -hmm. but like to identify with artists that like really do just become in some ways not anonymous but like they kind of transcend this is my personal identity right that's really interesting yeah yeah and even when you're talking about like getting like handcuffed and arrested like I personally was uh, thankfully not arrested, uh, but was harangued by the police in Texas because I was with, um, I was like, it's really funny. It was like 10 years ago. I was with my friend, Micah, who's Willie Nelson's youngest kid. Cause we were driving okay. South by, cause we were all playing together. We were like, well, let's drive from LA. Um, but like, wow, did the police love to harangue the Nelson family in Texas? Really? Yes, they do because of all the the you know like hemp legalization and marijuana advocacy. Just because he's too liberal, the the Texas police are out to get him. Yes, and so any time they can try and get a Nelson child, wow, are they stoked? Oh no! So like literally, it was like me and my friends, and like he had his van, and like like we didn't have anything on us, but definitely that was the only time I had ever been like really just actively stopped by the police. Right, right. yeah. Um, like they like, wanted they wanted to stop you they wanted to find something yeah yes yes and so I was thinking about the perception of like me being in that situation versus you being in that situation because for me it's like okay tiny like white Jewish girl from LA but oh it's the Nelson family let's try and arrest them right. um, but that's a very different perception than someone perceiving you I was talking to someone else about this like perceiving you as black even if you're mm-hmm. like half black totally <laughs> right and then and and my name always comes into play in a situation like that where they're looking at your id and that i think yes makes me potentially more threatening and even a different way to, i mean it's a middle eastern name which yes. has its own baggage so a lot of the time people just can't tell you know whatever what my background is um but yeah that's it's obviously not white especially when you get to the driver's license so that's yeah. Yeah, and and every police run in. I say that as if there'd been a ton. <laughs> I think there haven't been that many. That's the only time I was ever actually arrested, and we got off. I have no record. Um, but in that one, of course, I mean, we were in the desert in the middle of Utah, and this was like you know oh guys God. in fatigues and dogs. It was terrifying. It was really crazy, and it was fine. Uh, oddly, they were very friendly. We had to go to jail. We had to do all this stuff, but they treated me the same as my white bandmates and. We are lucky. I was lucky. I was going to say, like, I'm glad that that is what happened as opposed to really anything else. Yeah. Um, And I'm curious, was that something that people were writing to you about when you did start publishing about this? Because you have that experience of like that liminality. But I'm curious if some of the people who wrote back to you either like didn't have that experience of the liminality or like, I guess. Yeah, there was a lot of that. I mean, there were such quick comments, you know, they're internet comments and none were very long. But yeah, it was really... I mean, they're all still there, I think. But the gist of the bad ones was, you know, lots of you're not black. This is bullshit. Your life's been easy. Why Why are they even publishing this in the root? All those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like thinking about that of like, one of my friends called it the oppression Olympics. <laughs> um, <laughs> where it's like, I'm oppressed. Like, no, I'm like more oppressed than you. And like, it's about acknowledging like, yes, we all experience different 
layers and levels and you know like privilege mm-hmm. is not a bad word it's an acknowledgement of like a circumstance that you might have had that's different than someone else's right and so yeah like I actually like to hear perspectives of people who are very different than mine not so I can say like I'm more or less oppressed right um, right be like what was this impression Olympics <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean so much of it I really do credit my mother with I mean even when we were on welfare and had no money and she was obviously a single mother we always lived in great places and by great I just mean safe diverse places with you know neighbors neighbors we trusted neighbors who were nice we never lived any place really scary she never put me in a situation where whether it was a school or where we lived or anything it was always that was the priority and we were always in good shape and that I mean you know you can always have bad luck but you can have worse luck in bad places I think and we were always in good places you can kind of like buffer it I guess like where did you grow up? Because you've mentioned living in like Seattle and in New York. Yeah, I was born in New York City in the village, mm-hmm. fist bump. Um, and then we moved a lot when I was a kid. We moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then then Amherst from there. And Amherst is when I have really good memories. That's from age five to nine. Mm-hmm. And that was in this just incredible student housing. My mom was going to UMass, getting her MBA. Um, and we lived in this family housing development that was part of the university and it was like 200 something families and it was really I mean crazy diverse like truly diverse nobody so many biracial kids so many kids without fathers like it was there's nothing even unique about me let alone weird I was just like a kid in the neighborhood and all my friends are like that and then we moved back to New York I did fifth grade here um and that was similar I mean just as diverse obviously a lot fancier and I went to like this fancy private school on a scholarship in the village which was great then we moved to Salt Lake City from New York and that was a world of difference and I think so much of why it worked and why I actually love living in Salt Lake I was there from sixth grade through high school for seven years and, and really really liked it and spent a lot of time defending it I think those first 10 years and having that base and sort of being able to build confidence of just being a normal kid mm-hmm. to then be 10 and get thrown in someplace where you could be different I think I already it would have been different if I had come from 10 years of always feeling different and then going to Salt Lake but I kind of didn't allow it to affect me in a weird way I I think I think some of it is that Salt Lake is actually definitely was then a really really friendly accepting great place Mm -hmm. that's that's part of it and the other part is that I think I just came in not acting weird about it I'm just here yeah well it sounds like you you had that kind of like base of resilience and confidence. And it sounds like your mom provided that for you as well, which I'm like, excellent work. (laughs) Um, But it's like, when you go into a situation with, if your baseline is like that, you are treated like everybody else. If -hmm. someone doesn't do that, instead of being like, Oh no, like I'm bad. Your reaction might be like, what are you doing? Right. (laughs) right. Yeah. Like, instead of like internalizing it, you might be like, no, that's wrong with that person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <gasps> that's fascinating and like how did that then inform like when you were writing like having moved around that much like geographically did you then find out more about like the other side of your family geographically because where we, where we are does affect us I would imagine yeah uh, yeah I mean I found that out much later I and mean, that that was the crazy timing of everything with writing the book is that right around the time I started to write about my father and about my life all these things started to happen and and I guess in some way I was also exploring and digging and maybe causing some of them to happen, but it, things really got crazy when um, I did, I did 23 and me, 
mm-hmm. and learned a lot. And I mean, the first thing that happened is I wrote a story about this for NPR Code Switch right after it happened in 2018, I think. But um, a cousin, like a third cousin contacted me. I don't know if you've been on the site, but if you if you click the thing, you can yeah, open yeah. yourself up to, if you're related to anyone, you can contact each other within the site. And so this this yeah. cousin did, and I have, I mean, there's hundreds of cousins who are teeny percentages of relationship and it's, it's not all that interesting, but he emailed and said, uh, I have an heiress family tree you might want to see. Can I email it to you? And I said, yeah, of course. Cool. And he did, and it was everything it's insane it's a it's like a xerox like a scan of an old xerox document from 1963 that goes back to one enslaved man in alabama who was born in 1824 and it has i think it's a picture of him as a drawing but after that it has pictures of every generation um up till 1963 there's this huge family tree my father is on it his oldest son who would have been the only one who was born then is on it so I'm looking at this and even like the the few names I knew the names he told me of his parents everyone was on it so this is this is the thing I'm looking at it I'm holding this I can't believe I didn't know about it and uh and there's it comes with like a story I mean it was really eloquently written about each person and how many kids they had and what they did and where they lived and all this stuff and um and so I was trying to research people more and of course couldn't find much which is very common when you're trying to research enslaved people they're just like numbers if even you know they don't really exist whereas people who own slaves do and so it's the small town in Mississippi and it talks about the slave owner and I think I, I thought I found him online not not found him but very easily looked up that name saw that his family tree he owned a farm all this stuff like it was very likely it was him and there's this woman named Karen who is living who is like at the bottom of the thing and her email is there (laughs) so I emailed Karen and just said hey I'm this is what's happening I did 23andMe I got this family tree it looks like you might be related to this person I'm just trying to find information I don't you didn't do anything wrong this was a long time ago I'd love to hear from you and she emailed me really quickly with like the most friendly welcoming you know, so nice to hear from you. I actually know a ton. I do genealogy on the side. I'm going to give you everything. This is amazing. And so we became really good friends over email and we're emailing at the time, like every day. And she would send me like, here's some weird papers from the heirs farm in the 1800s. And here's what my husband and I made for dinner. Like really like became like super close to it to a, in a strange way to where she is the first person I told that I was going to propose to my wife on email (laughs) it was really it was really weird to have this this family member somehow so I mean in my head you know that was the other thing about 23andMe is that I was I mean I can't remember 60 more than more than half white so in my head of of course there's I mean there's so many stories of enslaved people having baby like who knows what the mix is and who knows how it happened but right in my head it's very likely that we're actually related I was gonna say I would I would bet money on that yeah so we're kind of at least operating under that assumption and just having these incredible emails. And uh, I'm not going to remember the sequence of events, but that just led to me, I think, kind of realizing, wow, and I'm writing this all the time and it's happening. So I'm sort of like writing about what I know, researching what I don't know. And then this happens and then I'm writing about these new things that happen. And then also old memories are coming up. And so this is how the kind of book is coming together. And this is probably when I'm realizing it is a book. Um, and then I'm trying to think how I, I can remember how I met the LA people. I got, con- oh, of course, this is insane. So that story published. And then 
one day I got a Facebook message from a woman in Los Angeles where my father's family is they're from Oklahoma, but all relocated to Los Angeles in the 40s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a Facebook message saying, I read your NPR article. I am your first cousin. We have the same grandmother. I'm in Los Angeles. Call me. Wow. And had this incredible call. This is my first cousin, this incredible call with her and her family on speakerphone. And a lot of this is also connected to the fact that my father, while we had that great lunch in Seattle, that was kind of it. It's not, he's not, he didn't say, don't ever call me again. He just kind of faded away. And I think that's just who he is. It's not, it never felt mean. It just, I think he's just whatever he's who he is and I'm not part of it. And that's always been the deal and and it's okay. But I think that opened up my need to find more and suddenly I was finding it. So at the end of this first call with my cousin, she says, oh, and you need to call your aunt. And I thought I knew about my father's three sisters, but I thought they were all dead. And she said, no, there's still one who's alive here's her number, call her right now. And so right after that, I called this woman who was my aunt. And then I went to LA for work like a week later. First thing I did was I went and met my aunt. And it's crazy. I mean, she could be my mother, how much we look alike. We wear the same glasses, how well we got along. And it's it's really crazy. So these are like close relatives who I now hang out with and talk to. And it's, it's wild. That's, and it's almost like your dad was like a conduit for it. It's right. That, absolutely. Your dad just kind of like, kind of like saunters out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that's the funny thing. And I think there's, you know, there's different ways to look at things like this. And I think a lot of people would look at this like, man, your dad sucks. It's bullshit. And I look at it as, wow, all of this is happening around him. And in, in one way or another, he's absolutely facilitating it, whether he's doing anything actively to do so. He's not, but right. it's happening and it's all right. this swirling, crazy energy around it. That's fascinating because all the rest of you in a way are responding to this energy right. by together. And I'm curious, like, I mean, I don't know why he's, he's not joining in, but because he is kind of the, like, like this mm-hmm. weird conduit. The hub or the something. <laughs> yeah. And I'm uh-huh. just like, gosh, I wonder what his experience of that is. Right. Um, yeah. So. Like, yeah, it's crazy. So, wow. and and so as this is all happening, as this is unfolding and I'm meeting these people for the first time, yeah, I'm writing about it and it, it was getting to the point where so much kept happening that I, it was almost, I mean, it was amazing. All these things were incredible developments, but my b- book was, I mean, we'd done the book deal, everything I was done. And then something huge oh, would happen, happen, which I won't give away. <laughs> and I I'd call my editor and be like, oh my God, I have to write another chapter and we have to change because <laughs> something just happened. It was like, really crazy. Oh, no spoilers, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all like really happening in real time as I was sort of writing about it and researching it. It was such a crazy just storm of, of stuff. Wow. Wow. And was that happening? Like, were you composing all of this and collating all of this, like during kind of the, you know, gestures to the chaos of the last two years? Um, mm-hmm. Was that during this time that you were doing that? Or was that prior or? Both before and during I mean I think that the crazy the crazy development was summer 2020 gotcha so that yeah it was definitely still happening then wow yeah I mean that was a good inflection point of things have I feel like since then it's like things have like taken a turn and we're still turning yeah no nobody knows what's happening (laughs) no one knows what's going on and I think like that was when everybody was just kind of like so we know that everything that we've been doing up until this point like Loki doesn't work right (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
we haven't quite figured out what to do next, but we've well established it is not working this way. Right. I know. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, two, two years, right? God. Yep. Yep. Um, that's, oh my gosh, that is how fascinating to be able to kind of live in the art that you're creating too. Like that's so rare that that gets to happen. Yeah, it is. It was and continues to be really exciting. It almost felt like I was like sort of feeding this thing and then it would feed me back twice as much. Like it's very visual, but like it just kept this loop. And I mean, sometimes I would, you know, have I would go to, with my aunt. We went to the cemetery to visit my grandparents' grave, which was incredible. And then I just went straight home and type, 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 you know, it was all just trying to remember everything and what it felt yeah. like and everything. It was very, it was almost like I was a reporter, <laughs> but it was like, I was a reporter <laughs> of my own life. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, um, I was like to get super nerdy, um, the diaries of Anais Nin that it's like, she compulsively had her diary with her. And right. Right. Kind of like, fictionalizing her own life but also reporting on what was actually happening but also in a way like by mythologizing herself to herself it then changed what would happen with people right right so it's this like, wow yeah. yeah yeah that makes sense and I, I guess yeah I think I mean the more the more I sort of took risks and whether that be emailing Karen which is obviously a huge focal point for everything in my life but things like that and then having it work to a degree right. where it's like, oh, wow. And that turned into me meeting all these new people. So that made me so much more likely to do whatever the next thing was to try to continue building it. And it just kept working. That's always the funniest thing when you're like, I'm just going to go out on a limb and do this like weird thing. Mm -hmm. And the weird thing is just like, would you like more shiny objects? And you're just like, I guess I'll pick up another shiny object. And it's like, your shiny objects have multiplied. There are more. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of that for me, it comes with age I and mean, I mentioned that I just turned 50 but so much of this to me has this like like why wouldn't I send this email what's gonna happen right right like I was I was thinking about that I was with um with one of my friends last night who I realized I, I spend time with people of quite a wide age range um which I really quite like mm -hmm. um but he just turned 56 in December and we were talking about like, cause I'm about to enter a new decade. I'm just like, oh, I'm so excited to turn 40. And he was just like, I still can't believe you're turning 40. And I was just like, why? And he's like, you look like a child. I was like, I mean, besides <laughs> that, I was, just like, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, we've got like the immortal bog witch energy. It's cool. Um, <laughs> and I was saying, I was just like, I'm so excited. Cause like each new decade, like I learned so much about myself and mm -hmm. like things that happen. And also it's like, I have this like increased comfort with myself um, that like he was speaking of that in his fifties. Like we were talking about, you know, kind of like, do you, especially currently, cause we have very limited social engagements. Yeah. Um, do you invest in meeting new people or do you invest your time in the people that you already like know? And do you foster those connections and how do you balance those things? Mm. And like, who do you spend time with? And he was saying that he likes spending time with people who like are assured in who they are. Where it's like, not that they'll never change, not that they'll never like take in new things, but it's like, they have that assurance. And that, that is what you were saying about like, in a way you're kind of just like, I mean, I can do this thing. I can send this email right? because I know myself well enough that whatever the outcome, I'm still going to be like, okay. Right. Right. And I think at, you know, 25, I would have thought like, Oh, I don't know. What are they going to think? Maybe I shouldn't do it. You know, that's definitely, yeah. and, and for me, it's an age thing. I think it's not for everybody. Some people are just like that and can always do it. And some people will never do it. 
but but right. I think age helps. I know a lot of people who've become more comfortable with things like that just as they get older. That's why I'm looking forward to it. Is I'm like, if this is <laughs> if this is how powerful I feel now, yeah, <laughs> just wait. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting because I think like sometimes we perceive age as like a you know there's so many memes about like the older you get you're like oh the back pain, mm-hmm. um, but it's like we downplay the fun stuff that comes with it as like oh you become relatively like kind of fearless. Yeah, and much smarter. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very happy for that and I love talking to people that are in different decades so that I can like yeah yeah like sneak previews Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I guess what are your hopes for when people like read this because you have connected with people through your writing it sounds like in different ways and what are your hopes Mm -hmm. for people read this I hope I hope it makes people think I mean I know I'll go I know I'll get reactions that are good from people I know and hopefully people I don't know I know I'll get reactions that are bad but I I hope some people are able to just make I mean it's not a self-help book by any means it's just a book about my life but I hope maybe someone will see some parallel and maybe it'll help them through something maybe somebody who doesn't know their father or someone who's biracial or someone who has some similar thing that could be seen as a problem or a negative or a handicap and figure out how to use it as more of a positive thing yeah like kind of I guess how to navigate someone's identity like Mm -hmm. that's a better shorter way of saying what I just said (laughs) (laughs) I have unfair advantage I was listening to you and collating (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna write that down (laughs) yep Yep. I was like, do not fear. I, I can only be concise when I'm listening to others. When I'm generating it myself, it's like, and then for all these tangents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're in the power seat. Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm I'm really excited for people to be able to to read that book and thinking about just people sharing their stories. Like when you said it's not a self-help book, but it's like when we hear other people's stories, it helps us understand our own stories a little better. Right, exactly. Um, we also have like empathy for ourselves and others, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for making the time to come and virtually hang out in. Of course, it's been great. Flew by. <laughs> thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. Oh, <laughs>